large. I'm Leonard Lopate. After the housing bubble burst in 2008 and the world's financial system, system tumbled, some economists argued that it was time to re-examine their discipline. Has economics evolved in the 13 years since then? Was it already changing then? How are economists and economics helping or hindering efforts to address issues like the COVID pandemic, the, the problems with global supply chains, the decades-old problem of housing, education, infrastructure, and especially the environment? In recent months, economists have been divided on President Biden's proposed 10-year, $3.5 trillion economic plan. Diane Coyle, a former advisor to the British Treasury and the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, examines her field in her latest book called Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be. It's published by Princeton University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Coyle to our show now. Welcome. Oh, well, thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. Who or what are the cogs and monsters of your title? <laughs> Well, I hope the title grabs some attention. The Cogs refers to the way that economics typically thinks about people. And we're called agents in a lot of economic models, this sort of dehumanized term for it. And the idea is that we act as individuals, we look at the information available to us, we have our preferences, and we decide what to do individually on that basis. And the monsters are the way that the economy is evolving in ways that make us ever more interconnected, whether it's supply chains, whether it's environmental consequences of human activity, or whether it's the digital networks that are tying us so closely together. And I'm arguing that these areas are just not well enough mapped. So like those old, old medieval maps that say, here be monsters, we still have monsters we need to explore. Well, if we humans are the cogs, how well engineered are we for the economic machine? And, uh, and are the monsters multiplying? The monsters are getting bigger, I suppose, in a sense. And, um, you know, you referred in the introduction, Leonard, to the fact that we know the environment's an old problem. Why haven't we paid attention to it before? And I think the answer to that is that the, the problems are becoming more apparent. You know, wildfires in California or around Athens, floods, extreme rain, hurricanes, these are becoming more frequent. You can't pin down any event to climate change, but I think it's, in most people's view, clear that these environmental spillovers are getting are getting bigger. And similarly but, with but, digital... But wait, let me interrupt. We've been okay. hearing <laughs> warnings about that, about uh, the environmental problems, for maybe five decades now. Yes. And I, th I think it is a real charge against economics that the study of the environmental eco economic consequences have been um, stuck in their own backwater, if you like. It's quite recently that uh, Bill Nordhaus got a Nobel Prize for his work on uh, climate models and integrating the economics. But um, a very distinguished economist, Darona Samoglu at MIT, also just echoed this point in a column recently that we haven't paid enough attention to the environment and we haven't mainstreamed it enough in how we think about um, economics and what we teach to students. Your title also suggests that there's something that economics should be. Is that a, a moral should? Are you suggesting that there's a link between economics and ethics? Well, there ought to be, and it isn't, uh, it isn't foregrounded enough in economics. For many years now, economists have compared themselves to engineers or dentists or plumbers 
humdrum kinds of jobs where there's a problem and you know what to do to fix it. You analyze the situation, you get the information you need and you fix the problem. And I think this hides the fact that any economic decision is going to have moral consequences. There are always going to be winners and losers if you're talking about economic policy. Or if you're thinking about where do you put a new train line or um, a, a invest in a bridge, there will be beneficiaries from that and people who, who don't like it. How do you think about those trade-offs? And so this idea that you can separate what we call in the jargon the positive, the objective, and the normative or the ethical, I think is completely incorrect. And so just as in AI and in artificial intelligence and machine learning, they are realizing that you can't ignore the ethical consequences of what you're doing. I think it's the same in economics. Adam Smith published the most famous work in the field, The, the Wealth of Nations, in 1776. But 17 years earlier, in 1759, he published The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Did Smith see a connection between economics and moral philosophy? He certainly did. And I think those two books should be read together, that you can't really understand the wealth of nations without also reading his view about moral sentiments, um, as the language of the 18th century put it, that um, people have emotional responses and ethical responses to all kinds of everyday economic situations, and they have to be understood together. So my call, I guess, and I think you've um, highlighted it really nicely, is that we should go back to the founding father, to Adam Smith, uh -huh. and that integration. Was that surprising to his contemporaries? Did they, uh, were there other people who felt the same at the time? I think it would have seemed um, obvious to his contemporaries. If you think about what was happening in the Enlightenment and with other philosophers such as David Hume, thinking both about really deep ethical questions, but also about economic questions, they didn't have this sense of a separate economic domain where facts were king and um, you could decide everything objectively. So I think we, we moved away from that over the course of the 20th century and, and we need to get back to it. But can a social science ever aspire to objectivity when its practitioners are part of society? I mean, do, well, do, do economists reconsider how their field works or how it's taught after the housing bubble burst or the, the financial crisis or, or the Great Recession? That's a good question. And obviously, I can't speak for every economist, but I think um, there hasn't been enough uh, attention paid in economics to the fact that we are part of society. And actually, there are lots of things that we've got wrong. And people, as you said in the introduction, Leonard, are arguing about how big should the budget deficit be or the stimulus, um, what's going to happen to inflation. We're just not in the realm of, of hard facts. And the idea that as economists, we can stand outside our society in a white coat, like, you know, laboratory technicians looking down on an experiment mm. and figure out what would be best. And that's just inherently... Uh, value-laden and, um, and not possible, really. It's very hard to, you know, of course, you want to try to be impartial and objective, but it's very hard to stand outside and divorce yourself from your own deepest moral views. And your own political views, because uh, the political views seem to be playing an important part in where economists stand on many of the issues. 
you're right. And I think um, just as politics is polarizing, that economic opinions are, are somewhat polarizing as well. And particularly in areas like what's going to happen to the economy as a whole and what should government policy be. And um, so, so my sense is that after a period when there was a lot of consensus in economics because not much was happening in the world. We had a period called the Great Moderation in the early 2000s. That's that's evaporating now, post-crisis, post, um, post-pandemic. Well, didn't Queen Elizabeth ask after the Great Recession, why did no one see it coming? Uh, she did. It was a great question, obviously. And um, I think the people she was talking to on the day were not able to answer so there was quite a in, in the UK there was quite a, a meeting of economists getting together to figure out how to answer that question. I don't think we answered it incredibly persuasively. I must confess, and many economists said, "Well, it's the people in financial markets who cause the problem, or it's the regulators who cause the problem, or it's the fact that governments encouraged people on." Uh, low incomes to become owner occupiers when that wasn't a sensible decision. So there, there are all kinds of things that fed into the crisis. Uh, in August 2007, as the subprime mortgage crisis was growing, Ben Bernanke, who was uh, an expert on the Great Depression, said, quote, it's a question of market functioning, not a question of bailing anybody out. And then a year later, banks were being bailed out. Indeed. And um so there are many, many things that economists had not understood with some honorable exceptions. And, um, you know, Raghuram Rajan famously at a meeting of central bankers, Nouriel Roubini, a few high profile economists pointed out what was what was coming down the track. Um, but the majority, I think, just sort of closed their eyes to all the tensions that if you had looked were, were apparent and had grown so used to this period of the great moderation, that it was easy to assume that it would just all work itself out. You discussed the differences between macroeconomics and microeconomics. Can you explain that and, and how the two areas have changed in, in recent decades? Sure. Um, so this is a standard division and uh, university courses, college courses always divide into macro and micro. Macro refers to trying to understand what's happening to the economy as a whole um, in the aggregate, what's happening to GDP growth, what's happening to inflation, unemployment, interest rates. So it's looking at the collective outcome of all of the many decisions that we all take every day at work, in business, uh, in our personal lives. Micro is about focusing in on specific markets or households or individual companies to understand why they take the decisions they do. And um, they're completely separate in the sense that once you've got through your college degree um, and you're going on to graduate study or you're going into an area of policy or think tanks, you'll specialize, you'll do either one or the other. In micro, great advances have been made in understanding why people take various decisions. And it's partly because there's so much more data collected now and you know, the, we're in the era of big data, so you can look at credit card transactions, you can look at housing purchases, um, you can look at people's incomes over time, educational decisions. There's a vast amount of data, powerful computers and techniques for trying to understand what's happening in markets or in businesses. 
And so I think there have been some real genuine advances in understanding there, albeit with loads of open questions still. In macro, that's just inherently hard. Trying to forecast what a whole economy will do with tens or hundreds of millions of people when we don't have very good data and it changes all the time. It's not a stable environment that you're trying to analyze because people see what's happening and they respond to that and you get self-fulfilling events and you get bubbles. This is just a very difficult task, much harder than weather forecasting. And yet people make really strong claims about what's happening to the macroeconomy. Well, the general public relies on economics reporting how good is it in the United States uh, and the UK? Have journalists contributed to problems like the financial collapse in the reporting? That's a really um, hard question. I'm not sure I, I know the answer to that because there are great economics reporters and uh, they've improved over time in the United States and the United Kingdom. They're, they're expert people and they do a great job of translating between what professional economists do and um, what the public ought to be um, informed about. Um, but at the same time, it can actually make things worse. If you think about the financial crisis example, um, some of the bank runs we experienced in the UK were, were made worse by the fact that it was reported on the TV news. And people very understandably, if they see a queue outside the bank, think, well, if they're so worried, I better do something too. Similarly, with shortages during the the, the lockdowns, um, you know, if you see supermarket queues and empty shelves, you're going to think, well, I better be on the safe side and, and go and stock up myself on whatever I need. My guest is Diane Coyle, whose latest book is uh, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be. It's published by Princeton University Press. Um, there are daily news reports on how stocks performed, and we also hear a lot about the gross domestic product and inflation. How complete a picture do such numbers give the general public about the state of the economy? And then I'm, I'm, let me even go a little further. We might yeah. hear about the inflation rate nationwide, but nothing about costs in New York City as opposed to rural West Virginia. Or we might hear about unemployment, but nothing uh, on the labor force participation rate. So uh, are, are, do reporters oversimplify? Well, you're absolutely right that we could have a much, much richer picture of what's happening in the economy. And the reporters look at the press releases that come out from government. There's a tradition of reporting stocks because people are very interested in their investments. So it's understandable that reporters would focus on those. Um, but there are all kinds of things that happen at a much slower pace than daily news and all kinds of things that don't get press releases about them. Um, so you might also, th you gave some great examples, but you might also think about um, what's the quality of life in my town? What what are the facilities that have shut down? Um, how easy is it is it to get from where I live to the nearest big city when, when I want to do my, my, my grocery shopping? The whole area of the digital economy is largely absent from the standard economic statistics. So things like how are people spending their time online and how much of their um, purchasing and, and exactly what prices are they paying for things that they purchase. Many economists think that online retailers are able to charge different prices to different customers depending on their browsing history or, or their purchase history. But we don't really know because 
those aren't the kind of statistics that it's easy to access or, or get reported. Hmm. And so I think um, there's just a lot either in terms of people's quality of life and their understanding of their wider economic well-being or what's happening in digital or what's happening to the environment and um, and the economic impacts of that. That's not getting reported very much. After the financial collapse, journalists frequently repeated the line that nobody saw it coming. Uh, do they tend to ignore gloomy forecasts? Hadn't some, like Robert Schiller and Dean Baker, warned that the housing bubble would burst? They, they certainly had. And what I think you're pointing up there is the difference between um, the, the center of gravity of, of opinion or attention that gets paid to things that seem obvious to some people Um but they they somehow get ignored. They don't come to the forefront of that public conversation. I'd be quite interested in your view as um, somebody experienced in the media about how um, particular ideas or uh, concerns come to be the focus of what people are talking about at any time. I don't think there's any good academic understanding of, of why that happens or how that happens. Well, in my case, uh, I have uh, tried to become the alternative to the conventional wisdom. That's part of what I see my job as here, uh, digging a little deeper into things that tend to get the same coverage again and again uh, all throughout the media. So, and I suppose, yes, it's something about how, how competition operates, that if you're a reporter, there's safety in doing the same thing as other people. Do you think that's part of the reason? Yeah. Well, don't journalists often treat stock market performance as if that were a measure of economic performance? And do they do the um, same and perhaps even more often with the gross domestic product? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, clearly the stock market is a very small part of what we would care about in the economy. And, um, you know, similarly with, with GDP, there are lots of important things it leaves out. Um, whole areas of our lives that are incredibly valuable, volunteering, caring for people at home, don't get measured in GDP. We don't um, track what's happening to our natural resources, which are part of the wealth of the nation um, through the GDP figures. So it's an incredibly narrow view. People think GDP is a real thing, mm-hmm. and it, it isn't. It's a concept. And it's it's um, calculated by taking lots of different surveys and figures from here and there and putting them together in extremely complicated ways. And there's no uh, real certainty around the GDP numbers at, at any one time. Have new technologies of the past 10 or 20 years changed the methods of economics? They have um, in some direct ways and in some indirect ways, but not enough, I think. The direct ways are that we, we use the new technologies ourselves, whether it's collecting data or um, applying new techniques to try to understand causal relationships in the economy, what causes unemployment to go up or um, uh, interest rates to do what they're doing. So we're using new techniques quite widely in economics now. And obviously also people have noticed that digital is uh, transforming the economy. And there's quite a lot of theoretical work about certain aspects. Um, You can't ignore the fact, for example, that big tech companies dominate their markets. And so in the arena of competition economics, there's a lot of thinking going on about 
the business models and what does competition, what does good competition look like in those markets? But I think there are also large areas where we've not done enough work on what digital is doing. At the most basic level, it's capturing data. It's understanding what do we mean by a price index when rather than buying a camera and a radio and a road atlas and a diary and um, a calculator, we have all of those things as free apps on our phone. Mm -hmm. How should we be measuring the price of all of those things in that case? So there's no good answer to that. Um, How should we um, think about productivity when people are using digital technologies to do different things in different ways? How do we capture the innovations that are going on with blockchain? And should that be feeding through to GDP in some way? So I think there's a lot of work still to be done. And the digital economy is really different. It's in a way like the introduction of um, industry and the industrial revolution. When for a long time, governments looked at statistics on agriculture because that was what they were already measuring Mm -hmm. and didn't have a good handle on all of the phenomena caused by the Industrial Revolution from child labor and poverty and ill health to the growing exports of coal and, and textiles. So it takes a while for what we think about the economy and how we measure it to catch up with that reality. Hasn't the, the number of uh, tech companies been shrinking, uh, I guess, with consolidation and the like? Does that affect how um, we learn about these things and how, how uh, economics is conducted? <clears throat> that's kind of... Um... That's kind of complicated. I mean, obviously, the big tech companies have become very big indeed. They've done hundreds of takeovers, yes. almost none of them challenged. So they have That's grown what I was going to ask, whether, whether government should get involved and say, wait, there are just too many takeovers here. We, the big ones are getting too big. Yeah. Right now uh, in this country, obviously, Facebook is uh, suddenly uh, under serious scrutiny. But uh, I have a feeling nothing is going to come out of that. I'm not so sure. Uh, Maybe maybe in the United States, not so much will be done. But I think in the rest of the world, there's clearly going to be more regulation of the big tech companies, Um, whether it is um, the spreading of misinformation online through social media or bias in search results or just the sheer economic dominance of some digital companies in their markets. Every other jurisdiction from China to Australia to the EU to the UK is taking action on that now. So I would be very surprised if further significant takeovers go ahead from the big tech companies, and I think there'll be more regulation. So that that consolidation in those markets has probably gone as far as it is going to at the moment. There are also lots of startups, lots of startups And I think there it becomes complicated because if you start up a fantastic fintech company or some other tech company, then your best exit as a founder or as a venture capital investor is to sell to a bigger company. And that's been the case for um, 10 years or so now. Mm. So if we want that to change, then bringing those startups to the public markets is going to have to pick up again. And that's a trend that's been declining. And whether that's because of 
um, the, ta- the, structure, the structure of the tax system or the burden of regulation or, or something else is not, is not clear. But that's going to have to happen if we want to see more competition in these markets, as you say, have become really concentrated. But then the, the big ones uh, gobble up the little ones if, if they look promising. They do, yeah. Now you mentioned, think, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think what the, the tech companies themselves would say is, first of all, people love their service, which is true, and mostly they're, they're free. So that seems like a very good deal for consumers. And, and what's the problem? And secondly, that they were one startups and they lose sleep at night over somebody coming along with a fantastic new technology and knocking them out of first place, just as they did a decade or, or so ago. Um, so that's the question. Is it plausible that the next Facebook or the next Google can come along and replace them? You mentioned artificial uh, intelligence, AI. Um, now, uh, uh, companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple are using AI techniques to predict our behavior, especially to sell data on our behavior. If the models and algorithms are based on flawed premises about humans, what happens? then you get flawed results. That's clear. And haven't there been flash crashes as a result of that? There have been um, flash crashes because of algorithmic trading in financial markets. There have been documented examples of biased decision-making by um, companies or or government agencies using um, algorithms on on data that is biased. It's self-reinforcing because we have a, a biased society. And if you're making decisions on the basis of data about the society that we have, it exaggerates the the, uh, same kinds of actions that created the bias in the first place. So there's a huge debate now in the AI community about how to tackle those bias questions, how to understand what the data that they're using is, is capturing, and how to be able to monitor what the algorithms tell people to do and and put a human back in in that decision making process and in some areas it's fine if you you know i'm very happy that my bank uses machine learning to um, try to safeguard me against fraud and will flag any unusual transactions that's a very good use because the bank's incentives and my incentives are completely aligned i think it's much more worrying when you're talking about decisions where that alignment isn't in place. So decisions in the criminal justice system, about welfare payments, about access to credit or access to housing. Um, it's it's really worrying, quite worrying, I think, that AI is being used without the ability to monitor the data, monitor the algorithms, or insert human judgment back in those decisions that profoundly, profoundly affect people's lives. But they like it because it goes, it's much faster. It's faster, it's cheaper, and it seems to be objective. And I think there's this misperception about about the objectivity because the computer says so, it must be true. Now, sciences like physics and biology conduct experiments. Is it possible or ethical to experiment in, in economics? It's certainly possible, and um, it can be done ethically. And... Um, the, the the kind of medical approach of randomized control trials is um, is used in economics to in, in microeconomics that we were talking about earlier. So to try to understand how would you get people to send their children to school more in a low income country, 
or um, how do you incentivize people to save better for their pensions or use electricity more efficiently? And there are lots of experiments that take place in those situations. Uh, I think economists are less used than medical um, people to um, the ethical context. And um, in particular, if you have, what information should you give people about whether or not they're taking part in an experiment? In medicine, we have consent, but a lot of economists would say, if you tell people that you're taking part in an experiment, they're gonna, it's going to affect their behavior and the experiment becomes a less, clean, a less clean result. It becomes distorted. Yeah. And so I yeah. think there are issues to work, work through there. But um, it's, a, it's a really growing area and, um, you know, does indeed provide some kind of um, gold standard test of whether an intervention will work or not. Um, but always with a caveat that biology doesn't change very much. People's behavior can change very quickly. And the results that you get at one moment just might not generalize very well to other times and other places. And that's the real question about, about experiments. Well, People might see a result and then change what they do. Has uh, economics become too mathematical or economists pressured to represent their ideas mathematically, even when the case might be made perfectly well without math? Uh, so yes and no. Mm -hmm. And you open an economics journal, it'll be full of algebra. And there is too much of that. Paul Romer, the Nobel laureate. in high school, so <laughs> I guess I'll never become an, econ an economist. <laughs> it's not a not a popular not a popular skill to have, um, and, and so you you get it. It's a kind of display, you know, like the peacock's tail. A lot of economists will display their mathematical, their algebraic prowess, or their their calculus, and 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 it is overdone. I think. Having said that, I think of it as a kind of logic that you are trying to um, ensure that the way you're thinking about whatever you're analyzing is logically consistent. And um, that's a very powerful, powerful thing to do. Also, everybody has models. Everybody is looking at a complicated world and trying to understand it in a relatively few variables. So historians do this. They don't use the math. They don't use the notation of algebra or calculus. But they're saying, what are the what are the few causes of the first world war that we can identify and and trying to learn lessons from the past for what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future so i think the criticism of the maths is overdone in that sense but you know you're quite right we do wave the algebra around far too much <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Some people get paid for robbing us blind. Spending our money, have a hell of a time. Getting bailed out by Congress so they never fail. Making us wonder why they're all not in jail. You work 60 years, and what do you get? A 401k that's drowning in debt. St. Pelosi, don't you worry as you flaunt your greed. The Fed will print you all the money you need. We're back with Diane Coyle, who is the... Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, and her latest book is Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, published by Princeton University Press. Now, um, you, uh, 
you stress that economics has moved on from ideas embraced in the 1970s and 80s. What were the leading ideas then? Oh, um, well, in macroeconomics, it was a time when, um, because of the, the crises of the um, oil shocks in the 1970s, the idea that, at least in the United States, the United Kingdom, the idea that the government should have a leading role in the economy really fell out of fashion. And we, in economics, and I think in policy generally, decided that there were different domains. There were some things the government has to do. It has to do defense. It has to do some infrastructure. But on the whole, um, leaving things to the market is the best way to get good economic outcomes for all kinds of people. Are there that ideas, was, um, are, are sorry, there, go ahead. Are there ideas that economists have abandoned that are still taken as established by lawmakers and the public? For example, politicians often assert that free markets and private ownership produce the best outcomes. Do economists believe that? I think that's shifting significantly, actually. And the um, research community of economists um, would not would not agree with that now. But the textbooks and the, and the policy economists who graduated in the 80s um, probably have not caught up with where that balance of opinion, professional opinion is now. Because I think any economist who publishes in the journals actively would say, you can't talk about these as separate domains. You need both state and market. Governments set the rules in which markets operate. And they can nudge activity in certain directions that will lead to better outcomes. But in any case, you should be talking about how, how best do they operate together. And, and that will vary. You can't make any universal statements that the market is always good or, or the state is always, is always good. So I think that's quite a significant shift that's been going on in recent times. We're a social species. We can cooperate? Have economists tended to overemphasize individualism and self-serving behavior? I certainly think so. Um, and, and partly because we don't have good algebra, I suppose, um, good formal techniques for thinking about um, everyday decisions that are influenced, uh, where people influence each other. And you might say, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? That you don't decide to buy a skirt of a certain length because you introspect about what your preference is. You go to look at the magazines. That's what advertising is all about. You know, as you say, we're a social species and we're influenced by each other. And there are certainly areas of economics where those kinds of interactions are taken into account and um, looking at social networks, looking at game theory. The, but it's in the sort of basic textbook models or, or the the benchmark that you default to when you're thinking about how people approach problem, that's still very individualist. And I think it ought to be the other way around. We ought to start with the presumption that people are responding to each other, either in the moment or, or strategically, if you're talking about, talking about businesses, and make that the default. And then there may be some contexts where actually the individualist model holds, and, and in those few cases, we can apply it. You're a professor at Cambridge, but didn't you get your PhD at Harvard? Are there differences in how economics are approached in Britain and the United States? 
I got my PhD in Harvard. It was a very long time ago. Mm. And um, I'm sure the program has changed a lot since then. In my day, we had a requirement to study economic history. And I don't know if that still holds, although <laughs> it certainly ought to. Um, the US and the UK are very similar. And it's, a, in a way, a single jobs market for academics. And because of the language, uh, we read each other's work a lot. And there's um, much more U U.S. data. So a lot of U.K. economists will work on U.S. data. American I think there are more, difference more differences between um, the non-Anglophone uh, non countries and, and the Anglophone countries. Much more um, people who would identify in with, for example, with Marxist economics or heterodox economics in a country like France or Germany. American economists are sometimes divided into saltwater and freshwater, the ones near the east and west coast um, at MIT or Princeton versus those inland in places like Chicago. Are there differences in Britain, London versus Edinburgh, for example? No, no, it's much less pronounced. And I suppose if I had to locate British economists, um, it would be uh, a saltwater and, and of course, this is a generalization. People have all kinds of views. And there are definitely uh, more chi some Chicago style economists in, in the UK. But we don't have we don't have quite that, um, you know, fresh salt chasm <laughs> that appears in the United States. Um, maybe that's a reflection of the political polarization. I wonder, what do you think about that? Well, I, obviously, I'm aware of the fact that this country is divided, but not just in two ways. It's divided in many different ways. And uh, yes, it depends on where you live. And uh, uh, somebody living, uh, somebody who's a liberal in Texas is different than a liberal in Chicago and different than a liberal in New York or California. Yeah. yeah. Now, are there problems within the field of economics among uh, economists over how the field is progressing? How well represented are women and people of color? Very, very poorly. And um, I think you've, you've probably read stories in the uh, newspapers about um, the uh, sexism demonstrated in some online fora, about the way that people behave towards women versus men in, in seminars. So these have been quite widely reported recently. The proportion of women in economics is among the lowest in any academic subject. I think engineering, computer science and philosophy are pretty bad too, but we're in that cluster of subjects that don't do very well in representation of women. So you're an anomaly. I'm an anom anomaly. <laughs> yeah, many people say that to me. I'm an anom anomaly. Uh, uh, the figures for representation of people of color or people from low income backgrounds are not as um, are not as solid, but they seem equally pretty badly represented in economics. Mm. I was going to ask and, about that. Do people uh, who go into economics tend to come from more well off backgrounds. They they do they do, and. Um, this is true to some extent in the academic world generally, but I think we're worse than others. And um, it matters for social science. You know, I think it matters for any science, actually. And um, I was in a hotel room recently where the hooks on the wall of the bathroom had been put up by a man because they were so high up the wall, I just couldn't reach them without standing on the stool. 
So it matters for engineers, it matters for everybody that you think about the way other people experience the world. But in social science, like economics, it's it's absolutely fundamental. And here we have a subject that is at least 80% male and white. And how do people know what they don't know? How do those people know what questions they ought to be asking, what data they ought to be collecting? They'll just be whole swathes of human experience that get left out. And you're not a serious social scientist if your own profession is so unrepresentative. Do economists agree on what the most pressing problems are nowadays? For example, climate change versus inequality? And are there trade-offs between problems? Can addressing one area aggravate problems in another? Oh, that's a great question and not an easy one to answer. Um, like any subject, there are fashions in economics, and certainly because of events in the world, um, climate, environmental economics has become um, more fashionable, I, to, to, to use that word. Mm. So it's it's definitely a key area. People have been looking a lot at the interaction between epidemiology and economics for the obvious reason. And um, since Thomas Piketty's book in 2014, inequality has, has gone up the agenda. Another hot topic is productivity because all of the advanced economies have seen their productivity more or less flatline for a number of years. That's not well understood. And then some aspects of digital are becoming a hot area. So there are um, different areas of focus that you know, young students, PhDs, and young researchers will be flocking to. I think it's a really great question about how well they're integrated. And, and I, I think the answer is probably not very much, although there's a bit of work. So the inequality example, a colleague of mine has looked at which policies to decarbonize the economy have good impacts on the distribution of income in the sense of making it more equal and which will make it more unequal. And so there's, there are people thinking about those trade-offs, but is there a general sense about what are the important issues in the world? I think that's a response to events. I think it's. I think it, we all respond to what's going on, what we see as the pressing challenges because there are wildfires or because there's a pandemic or because we can see that many of our citizens have become, in effect, disenfranchised by their poverty and lack of opportunity. Conservative politicians routinely say that we shouldn't sacrifice jobs to protect the environment or shut down the economy to fight the pandemic. And uh, I'm, and then they cite some economists as backing them up. So is there tension now between the growth in environmental sustainability or health care uh, issues in, in the field? I don't really think so. Those trade-offs can get exaggerated. It's not that there are no trade-offs, but you can work around them. And you can always find so, somebody who's going to agree with you. You can find field. somebody. So you have to look for the um, the weight of professional opinion. It was the same with the Brexit vote in the UK. That There were some economists who were adamant that it was not going to harm the economy, mm. but 95% of the profession said, actually, it will harm the economy. And they were right. So, <laughs> And they were right. But if you're choosing that, you do it with that sacrifice, that economic sacrifice, un understood. Similarly, with the, with the lockdowns, and if you look at the data, the countries that locked down 
um, earliest and uh, quite severely, actually their economies have grown faster than those that, that did not do so. There's variation around that, but that's the, that's the correlation. So if you wanted to protect economic growth, you had the lockdowns. In recent decades, haven't the economies of the leading industrial democracies grown? How much better off are the most of us as a result? Or is it just a, a benefiting a handful of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who have amassed great fortune, while uh, most of us have seen little improvement? The, the, oh, uh, the rising tide doesn't always lift all boats, does it? It, it doesn't. The, the rising tide has left many people still washed up on shore. And um, in, in the U.S. in particular, median incomes, the sort of typical family, has not seen much gain at all in their standard of living over that time. Um, so there's that inequality aspect to it. You know, the other thing I think is going on, and this may be because of the pandemic, is a, a reassessment of what counts. And there's huge interest now in different measures apart from GDP growth. I mean, clearly jobs matter. Clearly people need enough money to buy what they, they need and want and, and prices going up will matter. So it's not that those economic things, don't, we don't care about them. But I think there is a broader sense that um, clean air matters, that access to green space matters, that being able to be with your family and friends is a fundamentally important thing. So my perception, and I think the opinion polling bears this out, is that there's a lot more focus now on, you know, what, what in my world we'd call the beyond GDP agenda. How do we think about e economic well-being in this wider sense? My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Diane Coyle. Her latest book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, published by the Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, it doesn't really seem to matter what economists think when you look at uh, the debates in Congress. And... Um, for example, President Biden has been wrangling with conservatives in Congress over his economic policies, especially the proposal to spend $3.5 trillion over 10 years. Do lawmakers listen to what economists say on things like that? I don't think they listen very much. And I'm not blaming them because if you're a, a politician, your day is scheduled from dawn to dusk. You don't have time to read um, anything beyond the papers that you have to deal with. So any well, information you have staff, can, isn't it? You have staff. So any information you get is filtered up through the staff. Mm. And um, but often often that will be feeding what people already believe, feeding information that that particular lawmaker um, wants to hear because that that's consistent with what they already believe. And figuring out how to change the climate of ideas is, um, is, is really tricky. I came across a great quote by Mil Milton Friedman recently in um, one of the books I was reading. And he, he said, things only change when there's a crisis. So the task for public intellectuals, economists, whoever, is to make sure that when the crisis happens, the right ideas are lying around to be picked up. But I don't think there's any precision about this. It's all about having that continuing public conversation. And I think communicating, e economists should do much better at communicating what we think about, how we assess the evidence, what evidence we look for. 
and a lot of economists are much more comfortable with the algebra and calculus that we were talking about a little while ago. If economic patterns depend on our behavior, do, do we need to vary economic practices from one part of the world to another to account for different ways that people do things? And yeah, and, and following yeah. up on that, has the U.S. Uh, and some uh, a few other countries try to impose on poorer nations economic thinking that might work uh, in the West but not elsewhere? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, countries are very different from each other, obviously, in the level of income, in how the job market works, in how good they are at collecting economic statistics, in what cultural preferences people have and how, how they want to live. And yet we pretend that economics is a sort of universal subject, that there are answers that are right for everywhere. That's clearly not true. And you know, to take an example, the US and UK are really in many ways very similar countries, but we have totally opposite healthcare systems. And the NHS is beloved by everybody in the UK. We, um, the only reason we'll pay more taxes is to fund the, NH the NHS better. And, and of course, in the US, that's seen by many people as, as absolutely unthinkable or even, even socialism. Well, I appreciated um, it when I was a student in London. <laughs> Uh, being able to go to the doctor and and not have to impoverish myself. Uh, yes. Or, or carry but, you know, a heavy uh, uh, insurance policy. It's, but it speaks to your question that the countries are very mm. different. And so a, ba a pretty basic thing about how do you organize health markets um, gets opposite answers in two really similar countries. And it, so this says that the context matters a lot, the history, the geography, the cultural preferences, the values of a society are going to change the economic answers that we should be giving to, to the questions. On the no, other it's a bit complicated because some, some of the problems are global. Climate change. I was going to ask about that. Consequences. That's, a, that's a global problem. Or supply chains, that's a global issue. Or how to manage data when it flows across borders, that's a global issue. And I don't think we've got a good way of... Um, you know, thinking about how to manage the, the econ global economic aspects. So if some problems like climate change are global, do we need a kind of economic imperialism, especially if nations won't coordinate on what needs to be done? The analysis has to be global. I don't think you're ever going to get past national politics in trying to tackle it. That's what makes the, these international conferences like the one coming up in November in Glasgow here so important because it's the diplomacy of trying to find things that countries can agree on that will reduce the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. That's, that's what's fundamentally important. Even if economists had everything figured out, haven't politicians and voters shown that they can simply ignore the science? You have to give me a very quick answer, unfortunately, because we're pretty much out of time. They can ignore the science. They do ignore the science. Actually, the science isn't as scientific as it claims to be. And sometimes some things are more important than the science. And it takes us back to the beginning of our conversation. And sometimes it's about, it's about the ethics and not what we think is economically efficient. And policy is certainly politicized. Uh, so economists, economics plays a role in that. 
It does. And economics used to be called political economy because the two are integrated. You can't recommend an economic policy without understanding the political feasibility of it. And if you do, it's not a good policy recommendation. So I would like to see us go back to political economy. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Diane Coyle's her book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, published by Princeton University Press. You wanted to say something? I was going to say thank you, Then It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Okay. Well, but that brings us to the end of our show. And special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archive at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a few minutes to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. Without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. Um, my guest lives in England, and in England, you would have to pay a license fee to support the BBC, whether you listen to the radio station or watch the TV station or not. But here we're asking the people who listen to us uh, to support us, because without their help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. So... Why not make that call right now in the name of London Lopate at Lord so we can continue bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else? And consider becoming a sustaining member, a BAI buddy, which allows us to uh, plan into the future. Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950, or you... Um, or you can also go to give to WBAI.org online. And to everyone who has already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, thank you so much. I hope that you will join us again tomorrow when the tech expert Alec Ross, who served as senior advisor for innovation when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, will discuss his new book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. See you then.